everyone. I'm Riyadh Akyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress, and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal, and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts, but we can find common ground in supporting dignified resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone. This is Rihanna. Welcome to Dignified Resilience. Our today's guest is a woman whom I have admired immensely ever since I discovered her. She is an incredibly inspiring leader who works tirelessly. And I also learned this because we've been trying to get together and find a time that worked for both of us for quite a while. So I'm very honored that Wei Wei Nu uh, accepted and found time in her busy schedule to be my conversational companion. Um, Wei Wei and her family belong to the Rohingya minority, a severely oppressed and marginalized people in Rakhine State in Myanmar. In fact, the United Nations has described the Rohingya as the most persecuted minority in the world. In Myanmar, the nation does not seem to extend beyond the ethnic Bamar Buddhist majority. Other minorities have been targeted as well, including Rakhine Buddhists in Western Burma. Uh, but the Muslim minorities have felt horrific persecution, Rohingya feeling the most severe one. They are perceived by many as foreign illegal immigrants, um, very uh, derogatorily called Bengali, and they have lived in Rakhine for generations since as early as the 12th century, according to many historians and Rohingya groups. We'll talk more about that. But before we continue to history and politics, I first want to note, Weiwei herself is a source of tremendous inspiration, and she has shared her tough experiences loudly, intentionally, and clearly on numerous media platforms throughout the years, thus inspiring with her own resilience generations of people from all geographical contexts. Um, she is a former political prisoner and the co-founder of Justice for Women. She holds a law degree from Yangon East University and Masters of Laws from UC Berkeley. She is also the founder and director of the Women Peace Network Arakan, and her work is focused towards women empowerment, peace building, and reduction of discrimination in her country. She will tell us about her work herself, but I want to remind that... Um, I want to highlight personal journeys of these incredibly brave leaders who accept to be guests on my podcast. These things don't come easy or at once. And I am uh, all in awe by the bravery and the courage with which they come forward to share their stories. Before I greet Weiwei, I want to add that she was also selected as a World Economic Forum's Young Global Leader in 2018. She has been named as a Next Generation Leader by Time Magazine in 2017. She was recognized as one of the 100 world thinkers by Foreign Policy in 2015. 
She was listed as one of 100 top women by BBC in 2014, and the list goes on and on. So um, I am so honored and privileged that you are here and that you found time to come to Dignified Resilience Weiwei. I want to say welcome, and how are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much for your kind introduction. Pleasure to talk with you, and thank you for having me here. Yeah, I mean, um, there is so much to, to, to speak about right now, um, especially with, as I said, your personal story, which I think uh, we, could, we could start with. You, in 2005, at age 18, if I'm correct, right when you were starting law school, you were told you were going to prison, but basically your crime was being a daughter of Kyung Min, who is a pro-democracy activist and school teacher from Rakhine State, right? Yes. What happened and how did you end up in prison with your siblings um, as well? Yeah. So in addition to my father's uh, political involvement in Burmese democracy movement, um, he was um, he was actually a close political allies for a current uh, state councillor, head of the de facto head, the le- leader of the state now, um, Myanmar, Ado Aung San Suu Kyi. And he was actually an elected parliamentarian in 1990 election. So, you know, he had been involved during the since the revolutions in 1988 in Myanmar, the pro pro democracy student revolutions. Um, uh, from you know, been he'd been involved in politics since then and on, and up to you know up until now. But then during those period, he basically, um, you know become an allies to the Aung San Suu Kyi, and therefore he was targeted by the uh, military regime. And, um, and he was arrested in early 2005. And then, you know, after two months later, they came to arrest the rest of the family members. Um, and we came to realize that it was solely because we were Rohingya. So when... Even then, you know, when I I was on trial, uh, it was a cro- close trial. Uh, it was inside the prison. Our trial was, our court itself was inside the prison, and it was a close trial. We didn't have um, we didn't have legal counsel, legal representations uh, for our trial, and it was very short and close trial. Even even then, I was hoping that they would release the family members and they will keep my dad. But then, you know, the judge announced that we've been sentenced for 17 years and my father has been sentenced, uh, my father, um, uh, you know, was sentenced for 47 years. So it shocked me and I still had hope that they would release with us, you know, with pardon after a few months. Um, you know, I waited for three months and six months and for, uh, and then on and on. Um, and it never came, you know, it, it, it wasn't true. They basically, um, you know, hated us and they basically targeted us specifically because we were Rohingya. Uh, the whole family was put in jail and destroyed our futures and our life just because we were Rohingya. And that's where I realized they're not going to release me. 
And um, at the end, it was in 2011 uh, where we have the regime change. So we have the military leader, uh, you know, transform themselves to become civilian uh, elected um, like leader. So we had the first elections after um, about 20 years, and then and then we had a sort of change in the country. And after that. Um, in 2012, we've been given pardon with, along with um, uh, another, along with other 623 political prisoners. You were not able to go to school for years. Um, I've read yep. in several interviews that now you refer to that period of your life as University of Life. And you very openly spoke how it was that incarceration that politicized you because of not just the experiences, but the observations that you had made by spending time with many women um, in, in, in the prison. Would you share some of those uh, with, with us, please? Yes. So it was really, um, you know, for me, it was extremely sad and uh, difficult to cope with the uh, conditions in the prison as well as the notion that you are put in prison and you are being treated as a as a criminal uh, although you know without committing any crimes and also you know the notion that you're supposed to go to the school you know the law school to study laws and but you are unjustly in prison uh, uh, you know um, and destroy your future. So I almost lost, lost my faith in laws and, uh, you know, rules, uh, rule of laws and, and w with everything. Uh, but then I started to, uh, you know, talk to, with many other women in the prison. Uh, you know, they are from, I was one of the youngest, um, but there are other girls and women from 18 to like older uh, women, but mostly when I talked to the younger one, I realized that you know, uh, at least um, as uh, individuals for myself, I knew what is happening to me. But most of them, they didn't even know w what was going on with them. For example, you know, they've been put in prison. Most of them have been pr put in prison for minor crimes, um, uh, or um, you know, and they've been a victim of uh, this uh, social economic status of the family members. Uh, for example, like let's say, like um, when they gamble in on in the like in their uh, city or in their street uh, or in the village, uh, they were simply doing this because they need to feed their children or you know, their family members uh, because they don't have a good economy. And so they have to do this very uh, like small kind of business at home, which is like gambling uh, lottery uh, in, 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 in localized lottery programs. When they do that, um, the police and the authorities arrest those uh, people in the ground rather than addressing systemic challenge or like big uh, gamblers in, uh, on top of, the, over there, um, but these are like you know they they simply do it not because they want to do bad thing, and of course it's not bad bad thing in many countries and in many contexts. The gambling is legal, but there you know you're put in jail just because you want to feed your uh, you know children or your families, and uh, let's say when they are uh, prostitute, 
um, you know, most girls I talk with, they didn't want to do those work. Um, they didn't want to become a sex worker, but they had, they left no choice with no education, no family support, uh, no opportunity, no employment. And they have, but, you know, this is the only option that, that remain for them. And they become the victims of exploitations and even, you know, being arrested. And at the end, you know, when I talk to them, I realize um, they don't even know how to have a future, most of them. And they didn't even go to the school. And I realized I was luckier than most of them. And um, and then, you know, I started to calm down myself and and uh, try to try to see bigger pictures, uh, you know, started to dig into deeper and deeper uh, to understand life of the people in the country. And um, yeah, that's how, that's how I said uh, it was my life education. And apart from that, I met with many, many uh, women political prisoners, you know, from generations, from the older generation to younger generations. And that was, um, that was uh, really intense to learn their life and their struggle. Um, you know, as I was a, I was very young when I was put in jail. I wasn't really politically involved very deeply. Um, although my father was a politician, so I was aware of the situations, but I didn't understand their struggle. So I came to realize how difficult uh, the struggle was uh, throughout this military uh, repression. So, and that was one other, you know, reason. And um, beyond that, I was actually, um, I, I had a very good relationship with the prison, with some of the prison staffs and officers, um, and um, and actually, uh, at once, I become friend with one uh, uh, officer in our cell, um, and she, I asked her. I realized, you know, the prisoners has been treated very unfairly, and uh, you know, they sometimes they've been uh, tortured, abused by the prison staffs and among the prisoners. And the living condition, the food, the uh, water, drinking water, the way they had to take the procedures of taking showers, and all of these things are really, um, you know, felt like there is no dignity. And I thought there was something wrong. And I make friends with these prison officers, and I ask her to give me a prison manual, to share me the prison manual. And then she shared me a prison manual to, saying that, you know, I cannot be public about it. And then I have to return as soon as I finish reading. And although I didn't have uh, papers and pen, I wasn't allowed to have papers and pen to write down note, notes. Uh, but I still uh, go through, skim the whole prison book and, and read the important sections that required. Uh, the prison manual was actually very old British colonial manual book, very outdated. But yet, there are some rights that prisoners are, um, you know, um, are given. Uh, for example, as like um, pregnant women or political prisoners, uh, seven categories of the prisoners have special rights uh, than others. Um, sick people, you know, like like this, different different seven at least seven categories. And at the same time, some of the standard that has been exist from the British colonial time are not really relevant to the current um, you know uh, time. So I read the prison book and I started to call, uh, we started, we mean I and other, you know, 
political prisoners in the prison and other female, you know, started to talk about our uh, ration, like food ration, proportions of the food, uh, you know, the water availability or accessibility of the water. So and the, at the beginning, we were only allowed to have three to five, like big cups of water to take shower. And we said, this is, it doesn't make sense. We need personal hygiene and we need an enough adequate water to take shower for our personal hygiene stuff very small thing like that we started to talk inside and then you know it was kind of I didn't realize how big was it uh, finally we were able to abolish most of these uh, very inhumane um, policies and standards that put in place in the prison and that's how I said you know this is my um, university of life university my prison uh, experience is that is incredible way way um thank you for sharing that um i you've been doing an incredible job through the women peace network uh, to continue building uh peace and mutual understanding and to fight for human rights uh, of rohingya and to empower the the women throughout myanmar particularly in rakhine state and advocate for their rights so before we continue, I think maybe I should just give a little bit of uh, complicated historical background to the oppression of Rohingya for our listeners. In a very short, um, uh, shortly, close to a million Rohingya have fled to neighboring Bangladesh when in August 2017, Myanmar's military launched what it called a clearance operation in Rakhine State in response to an attack by a Rohingya armed group. But Myanmar has a history, a long one, of one of the world's most brutal military regimes. So I think it's important to know that while the news about the oppression of the Rohingya might have been out in the international media in the last few years, we're actually talking about decades-long, decades-long, severe systematic oppression, deprivation of nationality, restriction of freedom of movement, sexual violence, and a severe lack of freedom to practice religion or access to healthcare, education, and housing. So we're talking about, you know, mid-60s and, and since then, slowly, um, since the late 70s, actually, thousands and thousands of Rohingya have fled Myanmar due to widespread persecution, right? And then we have, in the 1982, um, they have, a lot of them, actually, they have been denied citizenship in Myanmar since 1982, which has effectively rendered them stateless. Um, uh, under that law, they were Rohingya were again not recognized as one of the country's 135 ethnic groups. So I think um, the timing of my conversation with Weiwei is quite pertinent, considering that we have in November 2019, Gambia brought official case at the International Court of Justice alleging that Myanmar committed genocide against the Rohingya, which of course the government staunchly denies. Um, they have blamed violence in Rakhine State and, and suing military crackdowns on terrorist groups and terrorism. So I want to ask uh, you, Weiwei, first, in January 2020, we have the Hague-based court issuing a provisional order asking Myanmar to protect the Rohingya in Western Rakhine State under the scope of provisional measures, so-called, um, at the start of the trial expected to take years. Um, what are your thoughts on the fact that on May 23rd, Myanmar submitted its first report to the International Court of Justice detailing what it has done to, quote unquote, protect the, uh, the minority Rohingya from genocide? What, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Um, and what is the situation on the ground, actually? Is the military continuing to wage war in ethnic minority states? Uh, what's going on? 
that's um, true. The military continue to uh, persecute ethnic minorities and target the Rohingya in the ground in Rakhine state. And the government of Myanmar uh, continue to practice the policies, genocidal policies that has been introduced by the military leaderships over the last few decades. The, the Burmese uh, a government now, democratically elected government, continuing those policies against the Rohingya. So basically what that means is the people in Rakhine state still does not have full citizenship rights or citizenship or any documents to travel outside of their villages or of the outside of their camps or to travel to other cities or townships or states. So that's that's the lack of documentations um, make them extremely vulnerable to have access to any um, you know s livelihood and um, social economic rights. For example, they cannot um, you know go to the school. The Rohingya students are still like um, stopped, barred from being to the school since 2012, where the Rohingya were attacked, violently attacked from the first place. Uh, 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 you know, as the first time over the last uh, during the last several years, and um, they they have uh, basically uh, extremely difficult. Uh, like access in terms of when it's come to access to the healthcare. My grandmother herself cannot have any access to healthcare. She lives in the village, but she cannot go to the city to have a, uh, to get the medical treatment. She has a major problem with her stomach, um, and she's been, uh, you know, like uh, suffering from stomach ache for many months now. And she cannot go to the hospital. And even, let's say, even if she's allowed to go at some point, you know, by bribing or by getting permissions or whatsoever, at some point, even if she's going to go, able to go to the hospital, she doesn't have, uh, they don't have enough doctors and medic, medical support equipment for the, uh, for the Rohingya, where the Rohingya, mainly Rohingya lives. Uh, in Budidong Township, where about 300,000 people live, we have only one doctor at a uh, like city hospital. So that's how the situations. So the deprivations of healthcare, deprivations of education, livelihoods, economic uh, opportunities, let alone like economic opportunities and employment, they cannot even uh, do like small businesses or small business activities to feed their families. Uh, going out uh, for fishing or to the farm can be a crime. So that's how the conditions is continue to be uh, in Rakhine State. And um, with the ICJ, yes, the Myanmar government has submitted the uh, report to the submission to the ICJ on um, May 22nd, according to the International Court of Justice website. But we haven't seen the actual uh, document yet so we don't know what is what they have actually um, uh, submitted but what I can tell from our experience and observations and monitoring is that um, the as I said the Burmese government uh, is continue to practice all these genocidal genocidal uh, practices and policies uh, against the Rohingya populations. There is no changes, 
nothing has changed in the ground since um, you know January when the provisional measures uh, was ordered were ordered by the court. There has not been any changes in the ground. So that's what I can say. And the situation now, additionally, with the global pandemic, uh, brings all this into a more threatening environment for people who are left in, in within, you know, Rakhine State in Myanmar, correct? And then in Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh. So my next question was up to your knowledge, how is the COVID-19 currently impacting the community? I've read that on May 15, um, 10 days ago, there are local officials saying that entire block in one camp housing about 5,000 people was shut off after a confirmed case. Mm -hmm. So can aid organizations come in? Uh, of course, social distancing is a luxury in, in these camps as well. And, and then what's going on in terms of that? I read also um, Azim Ibrahim from Center for Global Policy in DC, um, who is an expert on the matter and author of several um, policy papers related, recently said that about 200,000 Rohingya could be killed by COVID-19 due to the overcrowded living conditions and limited access to medical supplies. What is your knowledge uh, regarding that right now? Yeah, so that's true. Um, you know, there are different um, uh, speculations and um, calculations, uh, research um, have been done uh, how the COVID-19 could impact the Rohingya in Bangladesh in refugee camps. And um, last week we have the first cases of COVID-19 has, um, you know, uh, found in, in the camps and now we've seen more and more cases, daily basics. Uh, we're not in the peak point anywhere yet, but uh, there will be a time. And it is very concerning. Yeah, it could be 200 or it could be 500 based on some other um, uh, some other um, uh, you know, researches. However, you know, for me, what is the most concerning and terrifying thing is that they've been under lockdown for more than a month, uh, almost two months now. And people are basically saying that we are not going to die from the COVID-19, but we are going to die from hunger and starvation because people cannot go out and find um, a food or go to the market and get uh, enough uh, nutrition that they, they need. There are NGOs uh, there like UNHCR and other big NGOs, but they only provide like rice, beans, and oil. And that's not enough. That's not enough, and and that's where people are really um, the frustrations of the refugees, and that is something that is urgent to address. And so I think the response, COVID nineteen response, uh, in developed world, uh, should be. Uh, uh, I mean, in the COVID nineteen response in this context of the, uh, you know, very squalid, crowded. Um, highly densely uh, densely populated refugee camps should be very um you know should 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 be very um should be different from you know how the covid response in the in let's say in united states or in developed world because the need and the contextual backgrounds and 
and the the living conditions of the people are very different from what we have here. So there is a special attention required to address and to help these populations um, to save their life. We should add that in terms of climate as well, this is a tricky part of the year because of the monsoon season, right, which lasts from April through October and it's bringing on a significant rainfall yeah. that could trigger landslides and floods. And this is additional problem in overcrowded um, tents. Um, and then I read recently there were fires happening. There's there are so many challenges. And one specific one that I also wanted to ask you, which this one's not natural disaster, is um, I've read that right groups and others have criticized Bangladesh for cutting internet access in the camp. Authorities yeah. say that from yeah. what I've gathered, it's to combat drug trafficking and other alleged criminal activities. But I do want to ask you, what are the consequences of a lockdown of internet in the camps as well? Yeah, so you're right. So there are there have been flood and uh, heavy rain uh, causes landslided. People tent are destroyed, and you know, luckily we don't have people died for the recent from the recent landslide. Um, and in addition to that, we have two times uh, campfire um, over the last two weeks, and um, more than seven hundred tens of houses has been. Uh, destroyed and there is urgency, um, you know, the extreme uh, protections um, need. Um, and at the same time, the internet uh, limitations or uh, locked internet uh, blackout has been there uh, for so long. Only in some places have very limited access to the internet. And that's put the, um, the situations of refugee more vulnerable mm -hmm. because you know that increase actually fears among the populations where they are getting informations and what could happen to them all of these frustrations could increase and fear can increase and that would that may cause other you know problems in in responding COVID-19 obviously um, at the same times you know when you don't have information it's 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 you're like you're like you don't have ears and eyes you know nothing and obviously we do believe that clearly it doesn't actually uh, stop the human traffickers or drug dealer um, when you don't have internet so I think it is extremely important that the Bangladesh government allow open reopen the internet access to the camp and um, you know give them a chance, uh, allow them to have access to information, respect their rights to information. Yeah, and before we get to the question of the response either by West or ASEAN, uh, I also have learned that additional challenges that we know that there's there have been hundreds of Rohingya rescued by the Bangladesh in early May, who after floating adrift in the Bay of Bengal and sent to Bashanchar Island, which is flood prone after being stranded at sea for a couple of weeks. And then we have the um, UN Secretary General saying that they should be moved to existing refugee camps. So what, what is going on with that as well? We have people trying to go to Malaysia as well, and now a group of them stranded on this island. Um, people trying to risk everything and anything, right? 
Yeah, so basically it starts from the from Myanmar. The people have been trying to risk their life. You know, they've been saying that it's better to die on the sea uh, than on the hands of Burmese military or Burmese uh, government. And so therefore they've been taking risks to take this horrific, horrendous journey to go to a safer place. Um, there has been both going on since, um, you know, like 1998, 99, um, and it's, it's ongoing until now. I mean, there are boats that coming out from Rakhine State. Also, there are boats coming out, uh, going out from, um, from Bangladesh refugee camps as well. Uh, mainly because the life living conditions in uh, Bangladesh refugee camps is very um, poor, very um, you know, really bad, and you know, it's uh, as as we described earlier, living in very small plastic ma made uh, plastic uh, plastic tent, very small plastic squalid tents. Uh, and um, you know they have no futures and uh, no opportunities in the camps apart from waiting for what NGOs are going to give you, uh, which is rice, beans, and oil every day. Uh, so people, you know, trying to survive and taking this journey since there is no proper procedures by the um, in Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, by the Bangladesh government for. Um, any kind of resettlement to the third country. Many refugee want to settle to the uh, third country because some of them, uh, they may have their family members in Malaysia or in other countries uh, since they have fled earlier on. And uh, they may want to have a family reunion or, um, you know, or they don't want to go back to Myanmar where their family members, their loved ones, their children, their husband are being killed. They don't, uh, where they have witnesses, their houses burned by this brutality, brutal attack. They may not want to go back home. So they need a, another form of solutions. So there should be a, a set resettlement uh, uh, processes and procedures uh, by the Bangladesh government. Since those are not exist in the country uh, in Bangladesh, these people are taking risks to by uh, by this boat. And most of the time, we will see the uh, news of boat drowning, or you know, being die from uh, hunger, or like you know, at some point they had to drink their own urine because there's no water available on the boat, and women are being abused and sexually abused by these traffickers, um, and all of this tragedy is unending. And yet, you know, recently we have seen that the Malaysia and other neighboring country didn't um, allow them to disembark. And then they have to return and stranded on this uh, Bay of Bengal. And finally, they were sent to this uh, Bashangsha Island. And this is not what, this is uh, not the world, uh, the world uh, this is not what we supposed to be doing to help address this, uh, this crisis. Uh, this will be again an ending, um, uh, you know, recurrence and unending uh, suffering. We need a stronger solutions from from Burmese government, from Bangladesh government, and from international community. We need to end this suffering. 
you know, it's suffering after sufferings. We need to end this with a stronger actions, you know, with by restoring the rights of the Rohingya in Myanmar. You know, it's um, it's it's about restoring dignity and equal rights in Myanmar. What we are simply looking for is that you know, uh, equal rights, uh, equal citizenship in Myanmar. We're not asking for something too much, uh, but we are simply asking our basic, fundamental human rights, and which is you know, a dignified living conditions with equal rights. And this is something that the world can help restore us. And there is no political will. That's why we're not seeing any solutions. And we, we, we are basically witnessing an ending sufferings of the human beings. So far, it seems that Myanmar's leaders have not felt like there is enough pressure, I guess, to, to stop the operations. Um, Myanmar is often shielded by China at the UN Security Council and international rights experts are kind of criticizing the ASEAN as well for failing to take action for resolving this crisis and there are upcoming elections in November, right? And majority, the greatest majority of Rohingya will not also have the right to vote as well. So what are your hopes right now in the next following months considering this global pandemic um is it the advocacy is it this sort of raising awareness what can be done to, to continue this pressure um is the court um that gambia brought up uh, a positive one as as long as it will last what are your thoughts so Denial of citizenship, denial of equal rights, and exclusions of uh, identity, ethnicity, ethnic nationalities from the country's um, nationality list is part of the genocide. And it's one of the root causes that we have to address. So along with that, you know, while we were, while they were able to revoke our, um, uh, the, our uh, citizenship rights, and it was easier for them to basically um, disenfranchise our population. Uh, 2015 was the first elections in the history that the Rohingya were not allowed to vote or take part in the elections. In my parents or grandparents' um, uh, times, they were able to take part in elections and they were able to vote. And we had ministers and parliamentarians and um, high-level officials in the governments. Now we have nothing and we're not even allowed to vote in our generations. And this is a man-made disaster. And it is a man-made uh, problem. And that has to be done with by the people in, in Myanmar. And this can only be happen when we have enough support from the world, from the UN, from governments, and from public around the world. And, and this can be happen, uh, you know, even if uh, China is backing up Myanmar, it doesn't mean that this is not going to happen. We need to have a faith. As I said, this is a man-made problem, and we can solve it. We need political will. We need to push the governments, you know, we need to write letters to the senators and, you know, congressmen and women. And, you know, we need to talk to the government. We need to talk to the media. Yes, advocacy 
and campaigns are required, important. At the same time, we also need, um, you know, the community development, building, empowering the community, building a stronger and resilient populations. Given my own example, because I have a chance to rejoin my education when I was released from the jail, I was able to go to the law school and learn educations and and I have a voice now. I'm empowered and I have a voice now. I can give voice and I can, uh, you know, um, basically, you know, represent the community to address this um, complicated, seem to be complicated um, uh, issue in a way that is not complicated, that is, there is a hope and there is a solutions. I can guide the people and we need many more like that. We need a stronger uh, populations, we need stronger community, and we need support. So that's why I believe community building should be part of it. And then we need advocacy and policy change, campaign and awareness as well. So to be able to build a community, we need to support the community members, individuals directly. Now, you know, you may aware that many governments use millions of dollars, billions of dollars to support refugees and uh, let's say even the Rohingya. But then uh, many of those support are not being used effectively to build a strengthened resilience populations, to make them independent and stronger populations. Most of this money has been used as um, uh, for the service providing um, uh, programs or humanitarian support. Yes, humanitarian support is the most important, but what we need for a sustainable and um, you know long-lasting solution is education, skill-based uh, uh, you know programs, and the programs that allow uh, you know them to be able to become independent in terms of uh, financially or um, uh, from other um, you know. Well, manner. Uh, that's what we uh, we are needed at this point. Building a stronger, resilience uh, community. That's how we will be able to address. And therefore, now I'm starting a new initiative called Inclusive Futures, where we will be providing scholarship, giving a chance, a second chance to the refugee students or IDP student. When I was locked up in the prison, I realized I lost my future. But then, when I had a second chance I become I, I I become someone is capable of doing things and helping people not from my for the, my community but also communities around us in my country and around the globe so that's why we need to give this kids, young generations, a second chance. So my programs, uh, the organization's Inclusive Futures will be providing scholarship for online education since they, can, they don't have universities for themselves in the camps. We can still give them education. There is a lot of availability and access uh, to the knowledge and educations online out there. We need to give them, um, uh, we need to assist them to be able to enroll and be able to access, uh, you know, by providing them scholarships 
and providing trainings, vocational trainings and leadership trainings. At the same time, bringing connections to one another, building leadership network among the minorities as well as uh, you know, the, the majority populations in the countries so that we build relationship, trust and mutual understanding among the groups and eventually build respect and address our, our you know, underlying causes and root causes with the aim to free over from, to overcome from persecutions and discrimination. So join me in my new initiative, Inclusive Futures. Thank you so much for sharing information on your new professional endeavors. That sounds so great. Um, and as, as early as you give me more information, maybe for website uh, or um, more concrete, concrete information available online, I will also use it to share um, as well. And you are a force. I told you that for good. And I'm so grateful um, that you are out there to um, be a role model through your own leadership. And your organization continually not only documents, um, like others, these ongoing human rights abuses, but you also offer new visions. And that's one thing that, that, I, that I admired so much and discovered when at a time when this uh, fighting impunity seems essential, uh, you are also thinking about the future and how it might look like. And that is... Um, all the more admirable. Um, and one of the things that I very much appreciated was learning about one project that Women Peace Network launched um, called We Used to Have Picnics Together, Memories of Friendship and Peace Among Rohingya and Rakhine Women in Rakhine State, Myanmar. Uh, could you tell us just a little bit more about it? Um, I learned that your, one of the goals was to demonstrate how the memories of stories of Rohingya yeah. and Rakhine women yeah. reflect yeah interconnectedness historically, yeah. right? Um, can you tell us just a little bit more about it? Yeah, sure. So uh, through Women Peace Network, we document the uh, situations in Rakhine State and situations of women throughout the country, like situations being specifically violence against women um, and human rights violations against, uh, human rights violations against Rohingya and in general. So we often come up with the policy briefers and uh, submission to the, let's say, UN or other entities. And at the same time, we also do uh, this uh, a few uh, public uh, reporting to for the public awareness and uh, and with the aim to you know reflect on the crisis as well as build uh, uh, you know move forward from the 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 status quo we have um, so that's the the project so one of the report is that uh, we used to have picnic together. As far as I remember, living in Rakhine State in Myanmar, we have friends from all communities. Uh, we uh, went to the school together. Uh, we were friends and we go out together and we had, most of the time we had no problems uh, before the government introduced divide and rules. Even when in the times of divide and rules, there are people, you know, engaging, uh, communicating and having relationships. So. In this report, we try to document the memories of the women from both Rohingya and Rakhine Buddhist community and come up with a beautiful report saying with their own words, with their women voices, uh, reflecting their life, their, uh, their uh, you know, like their, their, uh, 
their childhood, their their school time, and life before these uh, violence attack in 2012. Life before they become internally displaced person. So we document, uh, we interview Rakhine women in Rakhine state, and we interviewed uh, Rohingya women in Rakhine state as well as in Bangladesh and in Malaysia. So we track all the way back, uh, you know, how women were, uh, how women and men were uh, together. And, you know, they, they, they were basically, um, they shared their memories and their life and their activities, economic activities to school activities, uh, women sharing among each other, stuff like that. And it was beautiful. And what they were missing is their peaceful life together. You know, as a human nature, it is obvious that, you know, there are speculating and propaganda saying that Rakhine Buddhists hate Rohingya, but it's not that these people who hate each other, it's the system that create, that forced us to hate each other. And we want to discover the humanity, the deep downside of the people feeling. And that was one of the reports that we were able to come up. And at the Women Peace Network, we do women educations and empowerment program beside the peace building. And uh, we also do like advocacy and campaigning. That is very powerful, Weiwei. I am um, looking forward to all the amazing things that you will keep on doing um, to, to empower women and youth and to fight for human rights of Rohingya. And that said, this leads me to the part of the podcast, uh, which I called Five Sweet Questions, where I ask you things about you, uh, because I want our listeners to get to know you, uh, not just as this powerful leader and force, but uh, a little bit more about you, who you are behind the scenes. Um, so the first question would be, once the current emergency is over, um, I'm referring to pandemic um, right now. Um, is there any anything that you would not want to forget? Yeah, that's 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 a tough question, actually. Um, actually, I like. I feel like I I am able to connect with more people, um, like in different continent now than ever because I feel like I have suddenly more time than before and I don't have to travel that much. Uh, in the past, I traveled all over, all over the world, like, you know, um, monthly basis or sometimes by uh, weekly basis, um, like I'm in one continent to another continent. Uh, but now I, I save those travel times so I am able to communicate with people. I've been able to talk with many, many, many of our volunteers and members in Rakhine, in the camps, and my families and uh, family members and cousins. And, uh, and ever since um, I have, they have been out there, I have the most, um, uh, you know, the, the, the most time at this, at this point to be able to talk and communicate directly one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and that has been very beautiful. I think uh, I'll be able to manage to to maintain that level of communication to to the uh, to to everyone. I I I I, I mean we need it. Um, so that's one thing. Um, otherwise, um, you know, maybe I have more time to uh, I don't know eat proper food at home. Um, uh, otherwise, we just end up eating from 
uh, uh, junk food or, you know, from restaurant or stuff like that. I am very fortunate to be with, um, with a Burmese friend, um, friend's house. Uh, the family is so kind and so nice. Um, you know, they make home, make food every day. And I, I'm really privileged to enjoy um, the house and, you know, the food and the love and the kindness and activities together. I think I'm going to miss them. That's great. Um, seems like the best one can want now that care um, of the community. And so the second question is, which of your personality traits has been the most useful way, way? Like not your best, but your most useful trait. What do you think? I think... Um, I don't know how to describe it. Maybe it's pos- uh, it's optimism or like, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I don't, okay, I don't, I don't get up upset with the people easily and I don't mind people mm-hmm. for a small thing, small mistake. Uh, I don't even care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I only care the big mission and big one. Um, so. Maybe that's the optimism. I don't know how to describe it. I think that's um, because you have so many struggle in life uh, so much since you're young. If you take everything seriously, like if you, you will be suffer from many challenges. It will be hard to overcome. Sometimes you need to trade off, you know, what, what to prioritize. And I think I'm good at that. Although it might be difficult sometime when you have so much, um, so many challenges and problems and hardship, but you need to uh, find a way to overcome from it. And I think like, yeah, like that, you know, I can, I don't know, maybe that's resilience. I don't know. How do you put that? Psychologists would say that optimism is definitely one element of it. Um, So you touched a little bit upon it, but so my third question is, I know you're so busy and now time is relative, but when you have 30 minutes of free time, like if you were able to control your time, how do you pass that time? How um, I would want to um, finish becoming. <laughs> I started it. The documentary or the, the book? book? The book. Um, I started it, but I haven't finished it yet. So yeah, I would love to read the book that I love, or I would love to go out for a walk. Um, the fourth question: What skill or craft would you like to master to get good or better at? Um, I think cooking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I never wanted to cook because I thought it was extra work in our life. But now I started to realize when you're able to cook, first of all, you will be able to get the, you know, you will be able to eat well with good food. At the same time, I also started to realize, you know, food make people happy. When you give them good food, um, people will appreciate from their heart. So maybe, I don't know, I want to become a better cook. Uh, and feed the people that I love. That's beautiful. Um, 
I look forward to, you know, safe, safety so that I could have you over. Uh, I think right now we're close by geographically. I don't know how to cook yet. So I'll, I'll try. <laughs> I'll cook. We'll exchange some recipes. Um, so last question. Uh, are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you? I think most of them are similar. Um, if they're, I mean, they're all opposite. Mm -hmm. Uh, there are some people like opposite to me and, and even in my own family uh, if they're very opposite to me I if they're very close to me and important people to me I choose to help with them uh, help them but uh, if they're very opposite and they're not very close to me I try to avoid them so yeah I mean there are some friends that mm -hmm. are totally opposite to me but um, sometimes if they're not important close in my life and I would try to avoid them that's great um, thank you for for these um, answers as well and um, this I think brings us towards the end of our conversation before we sign off I want to ask you Weiwei is there anything that you would like to share with our listeners um, whether for pandemic coping or anything that continues to inspire you that you would just want to share with the world? I believe human beings naturally love, uh, you know, human dignity and being human. And I would um, like to request everybody, you know, to see each and every one of us with the same eyes that you on, basically promoting like having empathy towards each other and helping if you can. Uh, because when I was, you know, one day I asked my dad, his life has been very difficult. Um, you know, he passed all this rough life and even bringing the whole family to the, to the prison. And he came out, he continued to work on, um, the mission that would bring justice and peace and equality for his people and in the country. Uh, but yet the journey is not easy. You know, sometimes he can be criticized or it may put him at risk of life uh, in danger. And I asked one day that while I was started working on my own activity, activism, Dad, why do you continue this work? you know, you are already old and maybe you should just stop and, you know, take rest and read book at home and, you know, stay um, relaxed. And um, his response to me was that I am in a better position than many other people around me. And I'm doing this not for rewards or to gain anything but to help the people who need my help. Uh, so if you can, what I would like to request is that if you can help others, uh, others that are vulnerable than you and show some empathy and, you know, respect. Thank you so much, Weiwei, for, again, finding the time, sharing all those amazing insights from your professional endeavors and personal experiences. I am honored and privileged and can't wait to have you 
over for dinner so that we can also hopefully discuss some positive developments on international scene regarding Rohingya. Um, thank you again. And to all the listeners, um, I urge you to go online. I, I will share information about Weiwei's work and um, all the information that she will provide that might inform you better. Go online also and check out the amazing online exhibition on the you know, U.S. Holocaust Museum, Memorial Museum, very powerful online exhibit that explores how the Rohingya um, have basically slowly went from citizens to outsiders and the escalation of things from 2017. Um, and to everybody else, um, stay tuned uh, for more guests, for more conversations. Stay well and hold tight to those who love.